Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm back again with Dr. Jen Jacobs. Uh, you heard a episode with her back in December. Um, she's at Northern Illinois University, and today we're talking about an article titled Self-Efficacy Experiences of Graduate Students Working in a Sport-Based Leadership Program at a Youth Prison. Um, it was recently published in Child and Adolescent Social Work Journal uh, with Zach Wall Alexander. Um, you got a taste of this when both of them came on um, about this kind of research in episode 178. So that was uh, chapter 15 of the SEL book by Wright and Richards that's out. Um, but I'll put the full site of the article in the notes section. Jen, thanks for coming back on and um, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing hearing this research. Yeah, Risto, thanks for having me back. I'm getting, I'm getting pretty comfortable on this show. Good. Uh, so let's dive into the article. It focuses on youth from a juvenile detention center. Um, as you talked about, this is a, a population that's largely overlooked. Can you talk about this context in general? Yeah, there's there's really a lot to say about it. Um, the specific facility that we're at actually has an interesting history. Um, it's the oldest juvenile detention facility in the country. Um, so it first opened in the um, late 1800s and kind of interesting fact I found recently digging into the archives. In in those days and, and for many years after that, parents could just drop off their sons voluntarily if they thought um, they their sons needed um, some, I guess, incarceration or some different attention. So you used to not have to be sentenced to be incarcerated back then. Parents could wow. just say, yeah, um, I don't want to deal with my son anymore. Hey, that's that's a threat that you can hold over a kid. You're like, do you want me to take you to jail? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm done. I'll do whatever you tell me. Don't take me to jail. That's wild. <laughs> wild, totally. Um, that started to change in the 1900s, um, and it did become sort of part of a, a legal court system. And so now this facility um, is the largest in the state of Illinois for youth, um, and it also is the highest security facility in the state. Um, so half of the youth incarcerated there are um, have committed crimes that are considered Title X crimes. So those primarily involve um, gun violence in some regard. Um, and across the years, I've heard in its highest, I guess, enrollment, if you want to say that, um, there have been 600 youth, that's, that's years and years ago. Um, but in the past, maybe five or so years, it's fluctuated from about 200 youth are incarcerated there to now it's down to about 50. And I think that's due to kind of a variety of things, maybe not necessarily positives that we would think youth are committing less crimes, but more so related to COVID. And then also um, it's closely tied to the politics of the state. And so like policies are changing and, and um, it's looking like we're starting to incarcerate youth more as adults now instead mm -hmm. of in the juvenile system, which is unfortunate for a variety of reasons. Um, but to give you a little bit of the context of what it looks like, it actually is huge grounds. Um, it's something around like 50 acres. It looks like almost like a college campus. Um, and I guess I'm curious from you because most people aren't super familiar with prison settings, but like, what are some images you think of when you, um, first think of a prison? Like, of course that's going to come from TV or movies, but what comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, locked doors and big fences and barbed wire surrounding and 
and uniforms for for everybody. Yeah. The little the little lunch uh, lunch trays. Yep, you're so far all that holds up. Um, the youth are in sort of their uniforms, blue pants and a white shirt typically. Um, definitely high, high fences, several layers of fences. Um, in terms of, I guess the one sort of misnomer from TV and movies is um, their rooms are not barred. So not like the, the big sliding doors with the bars where you can hang your, hang your hands out. Um, it's actually, their rooms are con, um, called cottages and they're, they're housed um, single occupancy since there's so much space right now. Um, but the rooms are, are pretty bleak as well. So, you know, there's a desk and a bed, sometimes a mattress, not always a mattress. Um, and, you know, the toilet is in there as well. And they're pretty grubby. I mean, if you're thinking like teenage boy rooms, I think most teenage boy rooms would look pretty nice compared to what you're seeing um, mm-hmm. um, some of these youth in. So so that's a huge challenge. And, and they're mostly um, confined to their rooms or their cottage. So there are some common spaces that they can be in um, for most of the day. Um, especially if they are not in school. So if, if they've already graduated high school, they don't need to attend any sort of educational um, programming. So they can sort of just be idle most of the day, um, which is pretty unfortunate. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, just to tell you, too, about the, the sort of makeup of the youth there, um, like the rest of um, incarcerated populations in our country, it's disproportionate to youth of color. Um, so about um, three quarters of the youth at the facility we're at are um, African-American um, and most of the remaining um, youth are Hispanic and a little bit um, of Caucasian youth. Um, and then gang culture is hugely pervasive um, at this facility. Um, actually, most of the facilities in Illinois, um, just because of the, the high population of um, gang life in the city of Chicago. And so this facility is located just outside of Chicago, but primarily houses um, youth from gangs. And so actually when they um, go through intake at this facility, they have to identify their alliance with a gang if they have one and they are housed by their gangs which is sort of a safety measure both for the youth and the staff um, to sort of decrease um, kind of the outbreaks of fights that could happen if you're having um, gang members intermingle yeah sounds like not uh, not an ideal situation for for those those kids being in there because they, they are youth right like what's the what's the age cutoff um they can be at this facility until just before they turn 21 so primarily we're seeing like 16 to 20 year olds um but you can be incarcerated as young as 13. i don't think in our four years there we've ever seen someone under age 15. that's that's much more rare yeah well the the paper you talked about is on sport-based youth development um so and you focus on research uh, of youth from disadvantaged backgrounds. So can you give us an overview of that approach and talk about the role of the program leader in sports-based programs that focus on uh, sport-based youth development? Yeah, absolutely. So sort of the guiding principle to sport-based youth development is that you view youth from an asset-based lens. 
And that's really, really important with this setting. It would be very easy for us to look at these kids as bad kids. They are incarcerated. They have, um, you know, been convicted of crimes um, that are pretty serious. But um, sort of a premise of um, the sport-based youth development approach is to view every youth as having talents and skills and competencies that can be made better instead of deficiencies or challenges that we should try to get rid of. And so with our population of kids, it's actually really easy to do that when you start to recognize the backgrounds that they come from. So many of them belong to gangs and a huge part of gang culture is selling drugs. Um, And it is oftentimes like you see in movies and TV shows. Um, And so we try not to deny that background to them as, as that's an important part of their identity and their culture. And in some ways you can make the argument that it's what's helped keep them alive. In other ways, it's ended up in much less fortunate situations. But if you have a drug dealer um, and they have a variety of um, situations that they encounter every day, there are quite a few positive skills they can develop through that. So you have to be able to read the situation very quickly. So a a level of social awareness, you have to have good customer service skills, you have to be able to dissipate conflict and, um, you know, get to an agreed solution. And yes, I'm putting kind of a flowery spin on something that's destroys people's lives in, in many ways. But when you can look at it as these youth have really powerful um, skills and competencies, despite their tragic and sometimes traumatic filled backgrounds, it makes it um, much more sort of um, likely for a positive program to be established with sort of these, a climate that has all these um, positive aspects. So asset-based approach is sort of one of the pillars of sport-based youth development Others are looking to make sure the program leader creates the program around a set of values. Um, And so in these types of programs, those values often prioritize psychosocial development, so social skills, psychological skills, over the physical skills. So we're not trying to teach these youth to be like superior basketball players or, you know, like fall in love with the sport of boxing. It's much more let's engage them in in physical activity, but help them develop their um, respect for others or their social responsibility or their leadership skills. So a bit of an emphasis stronger on the values of development versus the values of physical skills. Yeah, and and I could definitely understand in in this idea of, you know, yes, you're putting a positive spin on a drug dealer, right? But at the same time, mm-hmm. these student, these kids have been, you know, incarcerated. They have been convicted of crimes and, you know, we're not, the prison system shouldn't be something that you just like throw away the key. The idea is to reform and kind of rehabilitate the student or, you know, kid that is going back into society. So, um, you know, it is it is smart in this sport-based youth development this idea of taking strengths-based approach of saying okay this is what we have how do we work on bettering the skills you already have instead of just you know trying to reform from uh, a negative viewpoint yeah and for most of their lives they've been told negative 
things about themselves. Like you come from this poor background or you're not going to succeed in school or you are a criminal or your family members are criminals. And so I think like that negative self-concept is so heavily instilled in them. It, it takes so little to, to acknowledge a positive and then the impact of seeing them realize that like, wow, this person thinks I have a positive skill or something like important about me is, is something practitioners or instructors can really, really elevate to Mm -hmm. one, build that relationship, but to help to start to change their, their self-concept. So I I hate to say it, but I, I always tell my graduate students this, like the bar is set so low and, you know, we, hopefully we're doing high quality work, but even if we're just like helping them realize at the very most minuscule level, like you are a person that is competent and has skills and value, like that does wonders because they're not necessarily getting that in some of the other um, like elements of their lives. Right. All right. So we, we did record kind of like a separate podcast about self-efficacy theory. Um, so if you're listening and you want to get the kind of background of what the theory underlying the study is, you can listen to that. It's it's fairly quick and kind of uh, conversational and, and explaining what that is. But um, maybe we can move to the methods that you used. And I'm especially interested in the use of voice memos. So maybe you can uh, throw that in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for this study, we had four participants. They are four graduate students who lead um, sports sessions inside the prison. Um, these graduate students didn't have any prior teaching experience um, in terms of teaching sports or physical education or anything, which is pretty notable. Um, and we collected data from them across two years of them um, teaching in the program. And Every six months, we interviewed them sort of about big picture things. But what's really interesting, I think, is different sort of data collection method than normal is the use of voice memos. And we came up with this idea to collect sort of spontaneous um, talking into their phones while they're driving to and from the facility um, each time for a couple of reasons. First, um, it's a very raw and authentic authentic way to capture their reactions to what's happening. Um, Also, we use it as a training tool. So myself and my colleague, Dr. Wall, would listen to them and be able to give feedback. They may say like, hey, I had this question today. This happened. I need some advice. Um, But it was also very convenient. It's a bit of a commute to the prison facility. So they've got this time where they're in the car. um, And we found a way to have them just kind of safely turn on their voice recorder in their car and just talk. And sometimes that looked like summary of, you know, here's what I plan to do today or here's how today went. And then sometimes it looked like reactions, just sort of the emotional components of, wow, this really threw me off, or this was very stressful, or this was on my mind. So we record. We have them record these um, just quick, like two to 10 minute, it's whatever it ends up being for that day, unprompted um, voice memos on their way to the facility and then on their way back. And in addition to just being really practical and, and help like kind of capture authentic data, it also addresses the fact that we can't bring technology inside 
for the most part. Um, so in terms of like being able to record sessions, um, video record sessions, or even sometimes audio record sessions, that's not possible. Um, so it helps sort of capture as best as possible in the moment um, what's happening and, and what are their reactions to it. And so those two data sources, interviews and voice memos, helped us sort of eventually capture the purpose of the study, which was to find out how is their self-efficacy playing out in the facility. And so if we know our, they're feeling confident and capable, then maybe that gives us information how to better train um, future instructors and then also identify like what are the tough areas? Where do they feel unprepared? Where, do they, where are they starting to feel you know, burned out? And I think it's just so important to capture this um, in this type of setting because it is a very tough setting, um, but kind of has implications for um, teachers working in underserved schools or community areas as well, because we're seeing sort of the same types of um, difficult situations in, that they might encounter. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I did a um, study with an undergraduate during his student teaching experience and we started off with journaling and the journals were very like light in the beginning um just asking him to reflect on a day-to-day -day basis and then we added the voice memos and it just opened it up because he would do it just sitting in his car after a really like tough day or a great day it was like you said it was raw it was just right away he got in the car it was a safe zone and he just like talked and we started getting 15 20 minute entries of him just mm -hmm. kind of reconstructing the day versus driving home doing other stuff lesson planning and then going oh crap i didn't fill in this journal that i have to do so i think the voice memo mm -hmm. thing is really really cool mm -hmm. and and i'm wondering too like how was and this is totally off script and but i'm curious of how's the irb like i'm thinking you know having so one of the things on IRB is like, okay, are you working with incarcerated populations? You check mark that, and there's all these other things you have to do, and and then you know the privacy of you know you're doing voice memos, but it's outside. You're not able to bring technology, and was that a, a a gigantic process? Yeah, Riso, that's a whole other podcast. I think uh, IRB took about seven months for us because wow. it was one protected population incarcerated but to youth um so i mean the the preview i can give you is it was an awesome process because it helped us to examine like how protective we're being to the mm -hmm. youth in the facility but boy oh boy <laughs> it was a long process so do so do parents give consent for a child in incarcerated population in, in incarceration so it's dependent on the state. Um, some states, the facility um, owns that consent process. So the sort of the, the superintendent or the warden can give consent for the youth under 18 who are incarcerated. Um, that is not the case in Illinois. So parents do have to give consent. And if you can sort of picture how challenging it is even to get in contact with some of these parents let alone have them have the resources to be able to like print a form understand a form send it back mm -hmm. it's 
quite a challenge. So for the most part, we've primarily conducted our research with um, those youth that are 18 to 20, just so they're able to give consent themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. That does sound like another entire episode (laughs) discussing the issues of IRB. Hmm. So when I when I read your findings, the mixed feelings of the program was very, very clear. Can you kind of give us an overview of their feelings and emotions from entering the facility to how it changed throughout the program? Yeah. So their emotional reactions was sort of their strongest, most salient source of being in there, which I think makes sense because prison is such sort of like a like a isolated, unknown setting. Um, and I am not exaggerating at all when I say their initial inductions into the program were pretty intense. Um, and these, the, we'd been training these graduate students. Some of them had been training for three, four or five months going into the facility, just getting acclimated to it, not teaching, just learning the, the, the ins and the outs of it. Um, but once they started the program, it, it still tended to be pretty intense. Um, so, for example, a couple um, tidbits from from our participants. So, um, Kobe shared, you know, I'm on their turf, referring to the youth in the facility. I'm not on my own turf. So, even though I have my my partners to work with, there's always that thought of what if, what mm-hmm. if. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we prepared the the instructors for the reality that. Every day inside the facility, there's physical altercations. Um, we've been super fortunate that it's almost been non-existent in our program that that individuals are fighting, but it's so normal and pervasive in the rest of the facility that um, you know nobody blinks an eye. So, so I think that thought of what if is always sort of present in our instructors' minds. Um, and I think about too how much race plays a role. So, two of our participants. Um, are black and two of our participants are white and primarily the youth inside the facility are youth of color. So it's a definite different experience for our instructors of color to go in there than our white instructors, um, both in positive and negative ways. So Junior, one of our participants to use black, identified that um, when I first walked in, I realized I was somewhere I knew I should never be it was something I've been running from my whole life, but I was now on the opposite side. And so he sort of had this reflection of like, I'm a black male. I'm the neighborhood he grew up in was, was kind of high violence, high gang activity. And so here he is in some place where many of his family members had been and he was sort of told he would go, but he's on the other side. He's on the educational side. But I remember his first day and the youth were just in his face like, asking what's your gang affiliation and where are you from? And, and he was just trying to just keep calm and saying, no, no, I'm, I'm here. Like I'm here to hang out with you, to play sports with you, to help you. I'm not here as, you know, somebody from your neighborhood and Mm -hmm. who, who is in this gang or that gang. So nerves are definitely a big factor initially, but what's great and expected is we started to see them subside over, over time for the participants. So, um, you know, a tidbit from from Kobe's perspective. Now the kids are starting to buy into the program. There's less cussing. I can just be who I am. I'm not feeling the pressure to hold back. And and that was an interview that took place um, about six months into the program. Um, and so 
it gets better, but then still, even um, one of our last interviews two years into the program, um, Charlie commented, every day felt new. You never know what you're going to get. You always have to be ready on your toes because as much as you work on those routines and that teaching, the kids always throw something different your way. So it's almost like this idea of volatility is sort of the only constant in there. Yeah. So what about the youth's reactions? Did they influence the the graduate students' beliefs about leading the program? Like, like, are there main challenges that kind of stop the practices and the factors that motivated them to continue? Yeah, the youth probably influenced the participants more than anything. Um, they're the driving force behind the instructor's confidence. I think, like, we can spend months of orientation trying to train the instructors and prepare them for all the range of situations, but it's not till you get in there and someone is in your face saying the F word and trying to intimidate you or, or even in a more tragic sense, like there've been many times where we've showed up for the program and, and one of our, our youth just found out they lost their sister to gang violence and they, never you know get to see her again and and they're here just sitting and you're trying to teach them how to play a sports game like it just it's it's hard to prepare um instructors for things like that so the youth really hold a lot of the power in terms of how confident they feel teaching um and that does become more positive over time as they start to build relationships with the youth so sort of another sub theme that we saw was this idea of good days or breakthroughs or milestones or growth moments um, for the instructors um, and so we're starting to see like um, Charlie said today people blew away my expectations in a good way I'm hoping this wasn't just a one-time thing I'm finally starting to feel like most of the time I go in there I can get stuff done and have fun so a day without drama in there is definitely worth celebrating. Um, but we're also seeing that sport type plays a really big role in terms of the youth's reactions and then how the instructors feel the day is going. And we were pretty intentional about creating sports um, or games that are an equal playing field. So. I've already mentioned that race is a big deal in there and, and some sports are highly kind of racialized. So um, one participant talked about like, I hope we don't have another soccer situation. Um, and I recall that day, it was primarily black youth that day and um, they perceived soccer as much more of a, a Hispanic sport. And so they were just not buying in and, mm -hmm. and rebelling big time that day. Um, but for the most part, we're doing sports that are sort of hybrid sports, so made-up games um, like a hybrid of basketball, lacrosse, and football, and we'll call it, you know, like Timball, which is the name of one of our um, instructors in there. And, like, it just sort of levels the playing field, puts everybody um, at ease that it's not, you know, a black sport or a white sport or a Hispanic mm. sport. Um, and we started to see that helped facilitate positive days. Um, so they would be more engaged and then that would make the instructors feel more sort of competent about, um, their teaching and then sort of a final cool factor reaction from the youth was the instructors perceived that when trash talk happened, that actually make, made things more positive. So when 
the instructors were able to trash talk the youth and the youth trash talk the instructors back, that sort of signified like, yep, you're in, like you're part of the club, which I think is kind of cool because it's an authentic part of sport. And even though it in its core, it's sort of a disrespectful thing inside this facility or inside the setting, it signified respect and, and mutuality in, in some regard. And talk about culturally responsive teaching. Like if you go in there and you go in with your culture and it's like be respectful, no trash talking, it could actually alienate and not have that positive experience. Whereas if you understand the context and you embed yourself in there, it might be a lot different. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you talked about this a little bit with the the different races of the participants who were who were teaching, but can you talk about the shared identity between the participants and the youth? Um, you know, like, did that help make relationships better? Did it strengthen it? Absolutely. Um, race and gender are probably sort of the two strongest dynamics in there that I've observed. And again, I should mention I'm a white female, so it's probably likely that I'm observing two things where I'm very different than the individuals on the inside. Um, but shared identity was pretty important. And that actually ties back to self-efficacy theory in a way because Bandura says, we gain confidence from models in our environment that are more similar to us or that we perceive more similar to us. And so it was very intentional that we're selecting instructors and graduate students to work with us that have the capacity to relate to these youth, um, both just from their backgrounds, but then intentionally creating those um, shared experiences. So race was a big thing. Um, Kobe, one of our um, black participants shared my background, where I come from, being black has given me the edge when connecting with these kids. Most of them think I had it like them growing up. And in some ways I did. And in many ways he didn't, but if, if he can find ways to relate to them, that ends up ultimately making him feel more confident. But interestingly, this wasn't just an experience with our black participants. Our white participants talked about being able to acknowledge their race and their lack of relatedness as an opportunity for being authentic and being real and that being receptive to the youth as well. So um, Charlie talked about um, I'm a goofy white dude who's never been to jail before. So when I talk to these kids, I tell them, you got to help me learn something I've never experienced. And he talked about sort of being vulnerable and being able to express himself that way would help connect them and sort of foster that relationship um, in a positive way. Mm. Um, and then like just the relatedness of the love of sport. I mean, it's just this universal thing and it's a sports program and it's, it's for some of the youth, the only sort of active engaging part of their day. So participants being able to exercise with the kids or play sports with the kids, which they did every time was um, sort of a facilitator of the program's success. Um, Kobe talked about um, you suffer through pain together and that creates a unique bond when you're down on the ground doing sit-ups with them. It puts you at their eye level. There's no more walls and no more barriers. It's just sweat. So kind of a cool aspect um, yeah. looking at the sports world there. For sure. So you talked about and you wrote about like the nerves and emotions are a huge factor impacting the participants. So it's a stressful situation. It's a stressful environment. It's a completely different environment than you would do in a school or after school program. So 
Do you still feel like teaching in a prison setting is a valuable venture for graduate students for their professional development? I do. I'm not advising everyone to go run out and find a prison to work in, but I think it is a very highly concentrated environment where you can get a little bit of everything. Actually, I would say you can get a lot of bit of everything. Um, like there's never a dull day in there. We tell our we tell our graduate students like this is the big leagues. You are going to if if it's possible to happen, happen, and your the the level of adaptability you are going to be able to gain in this setting is going to serve you very very well professionally, in whatever your career is. And most of our graduate students do not have aspirations to work in a prison. In fact, not even really in sport-based youth development. Many of them are going into sport management or sport psychology or exercise physiology. And we talk to them about how when you're applying to these jobs, which are highly competitive and people are going through, you know, stacks and stacks of resumes, the fact that you've worked in a youth prison is probably going to catch people's eye because if you can kind of function and teach in that sort of setting, like what professional setting can't you be successful in? Cause mm -hmm. you're seeing so much of it. So, you know, if prisons were more accessible, I'd really encourage universities and school systems to consider collaborating and, and just the mutual benefit of being able to help that underserved setting, but then also give valuable professional experience to university students would be definitely a valuable venture. Yeah. Corey Dixon came on, I think it was episode 152, and he talked about this. He, he did his dissertation in a similar setting. I don't know if it was exactly a prison, but more of like a youth detention center. Um, but it was, it's interesting because he talked about uh, teachers who were teaching in there, they're pre-service teachers, um, and going in to teach in this environment, he talked about discipline. Like once you take away all the things that you could do to normal like in school or after school students like the threats that you can hold over them and saying if you don't do this xyz is going to happen or you're going to get this privilege taken away when all of that is wiped out that's a very different way to teach sure and that's a very different way to have to build the relationship like that's the only thing you can actually like lean on because no punishment you as a teacher you could do to like change it. So I, I found that as really, really interesting of because it's completely different. So you have to base your teaching on developing strong interpersonal relationships, which again is something you should do in after school programs or coaching or, or in teaching. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot in this study. And so I think it would be great to get kind of like a takeaway message uh, or like a closing thought, like maybe what was it about the study that was so successful in helping the program leaders to develop their self-efficacy? Yeah, I think, Risa, you actually are just pointing it out with Corey Dixon's story as well. I would say our biggest takeaway that we learned from the study is that best practices are not as universal as we would think even just the theoretical foundation of, of self-efficacy theory, we saw sort of a reverse pattern where emotions and nerves would um, outweigh performance accomplishments, which theoretically is not necessarily sound. Um, and I kind of think the, the bigger picture that's happening here is that we have these sort of ever-evolving non-traditional settings out there um, 
whether it's correctional facilities or youth homes or even just highly underserved school districts. And they may not align as well with evidence-based practices as we think. Um, and even the traditional settings, I think we're seeing, you know, well-served school systems start to evolve just with time and just with the diversity of backgrounds of students. And so I think that it's important to um, equip instructors or future teachers with the knowledge that, yes, there are very solid best practices related to sport-based development and teaching physical education, and you should know those very well. But if we're really looking at building competent instructors um, who we don't want to burn out or we don't want to be dissatisfied in their careers, we might need to sort of reframe how we want to train them. And, and something we've been doing um, with, our, with our instructors is helping them develop almost psychological skills, almost like approaching teaching in the prison as a performance or like a, a sporting event. And so we've been um, working with them, like helping them regulate their arousal. How can they reach their performance, optimal performance states, like almost the mental skills training of, mm -hmm. of teaching. And so working with them on positive self-talk or breath control or imagery, what does that look like to prepare them? Um, but then on the other end, I do think the reflective component of um, them voice memoing and getting interviewed about their experiences is another important facilitator because I think it just frankly helps remind them of their meaning and purpose. Um, like that level of introspection helps tie back to like, yes, I am making an impact and and yes, this is I'm, I've set out what I wanted to. I'm, I'm doing what I've set out to do. Um, so I think like the voice memos or even just more practically like encouraging um, future educators to talk to their family and their friends about their work is is something that can be strategic to help them sort of develop that overall comp competency. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a great point to end on. Um, I, I I thought the the read was great. Um, I'll link to the article in the notes section. So for those of you who want to go kind of deeper into this, uh, it's a great uh, article. Uh, Jen, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Risto. Awesome. So um, I'll link to that article in the show notes. I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. And uh, that's all we got for you on this one. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.